we are going to look at Acts chapter 4, verses 23 through 31. I I love this uh, particular passage because this passage gives us a pattern for how the early church dealt with uh, the threat of persecution. It also gives us a pattern for how the early church prayed. And we forget that a praying church is a church that is an empowered church. And a church that does not pray is a church that is powerless. That God has given us both the privilege as well as the responsibility to enter into the throne room of grace with boldness. And he doesn't just call us to pray without ceasing, that is pray in isolation or be individualistic in our prayer life, but that prayer is most powerfully learned in the context of community. A church, they say that a marriage that prays together stays together. I would argue that a church that prays together stays together. I was reading uh, Oswald uh, Chambers, uh, My Utmost for His Highest. It was my favorite devotional for about the first five years of my Christian life. And I started reading it again this this year. And today's um, uh, devotion actually lined up with this passage. And Oswald Chambers said this of, of, of the praying life. He said, rely on the certainty of God's redemptive power, and he will create his own life in souls. When once you are rooted in reality, capital R, speaking of Jesus, nothing can shake you. And what we're going to see in this particular passage in Acts chapter 4 is that the prayer of the early church is anchored in the reality of its sovereign king. In fact, the prayer opens with, O sovereign Lord. Uh, And it is a completely surrendered community to God's sovereign will over their lives, uh, that they would be empowered and filled by his spirit to be witnesses to his glory, regardless of what comes their way. And this is the thing that I want us to be thinking about, because remember, Peter and John have just been released from, uh, from uh, the religious leaders. They were held overnight, basically in jail, for proclaiming the name of Jesus, and they were threatened to no longer proclaim the name of Christ, to no longer teach in the name of Jesus. And what they do is this. It begins in verse, uh, in verse 23. It says, when they were released, they went to their friends. They immediately went to their community of faith. They went to the church. And they reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. Now, here's the thing. When you and I fall into different trials and challenges, Uh, when we enter into suffering, personal suffering, whether it's loss, whether it's a loss of job, whether it's attack um, from from friends or from foes, uh, our tendency in our culture is to not go to our community of faith. In fact, when I went through uh, pretty severe anxiety the second year of Door of Hope, uh, luckily there were some people within the community that were extremely um, helpful to me, but my tendency was to isolate myself to not actually bring those trials. It was difficult as a lead pastor. You don't want to be a brand new church and tell your church you're having a mental breakdown. I recognize that's not healthy for church growth or confidence in the people. Uh, but actually, the beauty of a church that's truly living under the blood of Christ is a church that has the ability to live out its vulnerability with one another, to bring our difficulties, our challenges to one another and learn. The best way to learn to pray is not in isolation. The best way to learn to pray is in the context of community. I learned to pray from hearing other people praying. 
Uh, and I think that, that we need to be a church that continues to put prayer at the forefront of everything that we do. And I think that we need to understand that the trials and the difficulties and the pushback against the Christian faith, um, in fact, I would argue right now we are living in a time where, uh, where Christians are, uh, and Christianity is even entering, being pushed back into the political arena, which actually brings, I, I think, that any time uh, that Christianity begins to be used for a particular political party is a very dangerous game. It creates all sorts of difficulties. And it create, the fact, the day that our election happened, we had a man come in off the street and just start yelling at Sweet Gina over the, over the election that it was all our fault. Um, and I think that this is the reality. And that's just the beginning because we have the cultural norms that say, uh, say that um, our belief system is archaic, and is no longer valid for any sort of modern, sensible person. And so the persecution and the attacks upon the foundations of what it is that we believe is going to increase. And the fire is going to become more intense. And the heat is going to challenge your ability to stand in the gap for Jesus. And the bottom line is, is that whenever the church has come under serious persecution, where the church has thrived, it has been a church that has come together under that pressure, not separated and went its own ways. And so I think we need to understand here, this is the right step. The first step, I think this is the natural inclination that I have, uh, is when things, I, for example, I don't know about you, but I've been reading the news, so I need to do a news fast, because I've been reading the news so much lately, I'm starting to have like panic attacks over everything that's happening in the world, from, from uh, uh Fears. It's just it, the news just seems to feed on the fears, the fears of natural disasters, the fears of nationalism, the fears of racism, the fears of violence and terrorism, uh, the fears of of sexual liberation to the point where it seems like everything that we're supposed to stand for as Christians is turned upside down on its head, and it just creates this tightening of the chest. And what I find myself doing is not praying but complaining. And so what I'd like to spend the rest of the hour doing is just get those complaints off my chest right now. I'm just <laughs> Did you read it? No, I'm, I'm just joking. The, the, this is the pattern that we need to follow. And here's the pattern, is that they move in three movements. And I'm going to give you an alliteration today because it's helpful and because I've got good Calvary Chapel roots, it's, it's important to have words that you can remember. Their prayer is broken into three categories. And, and this, this passage just breaks itself up so naturally into praise, then petition, and it ends with power. And so forgive me for the three Ps, but it's, it's, it's helpful, I think. Uh, so what, is, what happens when they get together? It says, and when they heard it, when they heard of these threats, it says they lifted their voices together to God and said, sovereign Lord. Now, here's the fascinating thing. The word that Luke uses in the Greek is not the normal word that is used for Lord. This is actually a word where we get that English word despot. It literally means a ruler, a slave owner, or a ruler with absolute power. And so what does the early church do? And what I want us to see is that before we can come to God with our petitions, and there's a reason for this, why theology matters for devotional life is that your view of God and his character will define your activity on his behalf. Your view of God and his character will affect the way that you 
respond to him in prayer. And so they begin with praise and they reflect on three realities about God's sovereignty. Now, we often have a mistaken vision of sovereignty. When they use this rule, this word sovereign, sovereign does not mean that God has determined every single thing that has ever happened. And therefore, everything that happens is out of our control. This is not a determinist vision. Uh, and that is not a biblical vision of sovereignty. Sovereignty means that God is absolutely free to fulfill his purposes, his plans within his character. If sovereignty means anything, it means divine freedom. Divine freedom. He is not contained or confined by his creation. Uh, he is free to love sinners in their sin. But the danger of becoming overly deterministic in our understanding of sovereignty is that all of a sudden, if God is responsible for everything that happens, then that makes God responsible for what? Evil. And if God is responsible for evil, can we call God one of the essential components of God's characteristics is what? That he's good. Uh, And so what we need to understand is that this declaration, you sovereign Lord, is the recognition that God is able to fulfill and will, not just able, but will fulfill his plans and purposes uh, in, in line with his character. He will override the wickedness of, of humanity's actions. Because remember, sin in its essence is a rebellion against God's sovereign rule. And so what they are saying is you are sovereign over our lives. We pray that that sovereignty works through us and actually can override the threats that are coming against us. And so there is always a balance, a tension in scripture between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. God is not responsible for the evil that happens in the world, but he does have the power to overcome it and to utilize it to bring about good. That is the essence of the gospel. He takes the brutality of the cross, humanity's attack upon God himself. They put God to death, and he utilized that horrible crucifixion, the cross, which is a symbol of, of it's, it's like a, wearing an electric chair around your neck. It's a symbol of beauty for us. It was a symbol of ugliness that God redeemed and brought beauty out of, brought redemption. The attack and sinfulness of humanity brought, God utilized it to bring about his redemptive purposes uh, in human history. And this is the understanding of sovereignty. Sovereignty means God's freedom uh, to actually move in human history to fulfill his purposes in plans, in plans in spite of human brokenness and sin. And I think that that's really important for us to understand. So look what they, they begin with. Really, they, these actions, these characteristics that they begin to declare about God's sovereignty, there's three of them, and they summarize by three verbs that reveal how sovereign he is. They say, you made, Lord, the heavens and the earth. They say, you spoke, O Lord, through your servant David. And finally, you determined to utilize the brutality against your son to fulfill redemptive history. And so really, there are three, petition, or three proclamations of praise, and that is God is creator, God is the God of revelation, and God is the God of history. So beginning with God of creation, look what it says in verse 24. It says, you, O sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. The early church, when they prayed in this moment, in its particular history, as the threat has come against them, the ugliness of creation fighting against its creator, they recognize that their 
their ability to call on God to empower them was based upon the fact that sin can only go so far, that humanity has, we have freedom, but it is freedom within limitations. And it says, whoever sins is a slave to sin. And they recognize that God's sovereign rule means that he, as creator of all things, all things are under his control. That is that when we, you and I, face dark days, when evil infiltrates our consciousness and hits and hits the eyes through the newspapers and we see atrocities and shootings in churches and terrorist attacks and racism all these things that come up in our world we must not lose sight that god is the creator of all and he will put right all that is wrong we are confident that god is in control right now and we are even more confident and our hope rests upon due to the resurrection of Jesus, that God will come back and establish a new heaven and new earth. He will wipe away every tear and every knee shall bow to Jesus as Lord. And I think that we need to remember that because it is that confidence that gives us the ability to face darkness without hiding from it. And I think that this is a powerful reality. I I like um, uh, what... uh, Carl Barth says about God as creator in his book, Church Dogmatics, um, he, uh, or Dogmatics in Outline. He says he, can tra- he could creates, sustains, and rules the world as his theater, the, as the theater of his glory. I love that. And in, its midst, and in its midst, man also as the witness of his glory. We are called as followers, as children of Jesus, to declare the glory of God in his creation. And his glory is revealed not through the beauty that we see around us, although it is, it is to a certain level, but really the way that God is revealed to the world is through his final revelation, and that is his son, Jesus. And we are witnesses of that glory. And so this world was created for us to be in covenant relationship with him. He created the universe that we might have a place to engage in covenantal relationship with him through his son. And I think that the power of this prayer is that instead of being afraid, which is so often the marks of Christians today, is that we're fueled by fears, uh, is, is that they recognize God as sovereign Lord, creator of the heavens and earth. That means that there is nothing outside of his control. They, they speak this with boldness without ever making God responsible for the evil that happens within his world. In fact, they acknowledge God's ability in his sovereignty and in his freedom to override it and bring about the good news of the gospel. And this is why he goes on in verse 25 through 26. He says, you, he says, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Here, uh, the early church in, in its praise together, and here's a, this is a fascinating thing. They're quoting from Psalm 2 here. And the reason I say it begins with praise. This is possibly, this, this part of the prayer was possibly sung. And there's actually a lot of commentaries that believe that, that this is the first moment where you see the church singing together. And I think that it's fascinating that we enter his gates with thanksgiving and praise, that we begin, there's a reason why we in, in our church, we don't do the order of things for just to do it. There's a, there's, we believe that there's a biblical reason that, that music uh, is a gift from God that allows our hearts to be prepared uh, to in, we enter into thanksgiving with praise that God has revealed so much love to us that the only thing we can do is rejoice. We sing together as one body, Jesus being the head, 
Uh, and then and we pray together. And I think that it's fascinating that praise leads to prayer. And I, I think that that is true in my own life. I often, uh, my personal worship is often found in writing songs of praise to my king that leads to a, a deeper, richer prayer life. And I think this is a beautiful spot. And I think here in Psalm 2, this shows that the early church, with, by the middle of the first century, already read Psalm 2 as a messianic psalm that was fulfilled in the person of Jesus. And they are quoting directly from verses 1 and 2, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant said by the Holy Spirit. So what are they saying about God as sovereign ruler? That he is a God not only who created, but he's a God who speaks that he's a God of revelation, that God has not left us to our own devices to determine what God is like, but God has actually chosen to reveal himself to us through his scriptures. And they already saw the connection that the way to know God intimately was by actually taking his scriptures into their hearts and minds and reflecting upon the fact that the written word was a pointer to the logos, the living word, Jesus Christ. For God at various times in various ways has spoken through the prophets and through the scriptures, but in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son. And so I love this because they are utilizing this messianic psalm as a way of declaring that God's sovereignty means that he is a God who has spoken. He has spoken into our reality, his reality by which all other realities hinge. And I think this is so beautiful because he is a God of revelation. And this is why I said last week that you can't know God if you don't spend time with him. And you can't spend time with him if you refuse to ever open up his scriptures. All you will do is you will create a God after your own image. And you didn't understand that you were made after his image. And that image is not gone. It's just simply corrupted. It's been infiltrated with a thing called sin. And what the gospel does as we, as we grow in increasing degrees of intimacy with King Jesus is that his revelation refines our character. It brings into contrast the very thought process by which Paul said, but we have the mind of Christ. Jesus said, I will, um, the Holy Spirit, when he comes, he will bring to remembrance all that I have said. I often say, he can't bring to remembrance what you have not first put in. And so we must be a people of the word. And notice their praise, their prayer life and their praise is dictated. It begins. They don't know. If you don't know what to pray, the best place to start when you pray is to pray scripture. Uh, often when we do prayer nights, I like to do a season of prayer where we literally just pray the scriptures out loud because the scriptures actually give us the parameters by which we can relate to God. Everything that God reveals about himself in scripture is never disconnected from his relationship with you and I. Everything he reveals about himself is directly connected to his, relation, his covenantal relationship with us because God is relational in the very essence of his being. I think this is a powerful uh, reality. He is the God of creation. He is the God of revelation. You made, you spoke. And then look what it says here at verses 27 through 28. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. You decided, you are the God of history. Notice the psalm that they used, the early church in its prayer recognized Psalm 2 as being fulfilled before their very eyes. That the Gentiles and the Jews and the religious leaders, their threats against preaching in the name of Jesus is in direct accordance with what the scripture predicted would happen. And this is actually one of the things I think is important for us to understand as a church today is that much of the things that we struggle with uh, as modern people, the scriptures address it. 
And I think if we spent more time in the Word, it's, it's like what Eugene Peterson said. He goes, if we would spend time in the Word, if we remembered that people were sinners, we wouldn't be surprised when they sin. If we are frustrated and fearful and overwhelmed and angry uh, at our leaders around us or things that are happening in the world, if we read the Scriptures and actually saw what the Scripture says about those who, who are outside of the light of the Gospel and even how we as Christians should respond, we wouldn't be so taken off guard by difficulties, because we would actually have the, the structure, the construct by which to actually to navigate the challenges of life today. Because the hardest thing in life is to live well. But Jesus said, whoever the Son of Man sets free shall be free indeed. And yet, why do so few Christians live in freedom? It's because they don't know the King of Freedom. And I think that this is important here, because look what they go on to say. You, for truly in this city, they were gathered together. They saw that the very attacks against Jesus, that, that this was something that God had his hand upon. It was under his control. It was a part of his plan. Uh, and it says, it's, I love this, it says, um, to, do, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Now, we're often scared of that word predestination. And the reason that we're scared of it is because we turn it into a time word. Uh, in Ephesians chapter 1, it says that, that we who are chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. It is impossible for most people to not think of that in terms of a point in time. But what was before the foundation? And when it says foundation of the world, it's literally foundation of the cosmos. What was the time before the cosmos? You're like, is that a physics question? <laughs> it's not. I'm not a strong science guy. Because there's only one answer for before the foundation of the cosmos, and that is, it's not a time statement at all. It's a God statement. All that the writer is saying, all that Paul is saying in Ephesians and what is being stated is that this is a decision that was made in God. And I think that that is very helpful. It's not God back at some point in time having a grab bag of who's going to be saved and then and selecting the rest to go to hell. And the only people that ever hold to that doctrine are those who seem to be in the chosen, chosen side. You don't hear about people that, are, that feel, uh, feel damned holding to double predestination. You know, Jesus chose me for hell, I'm just going to raise it. <laughs> no, I've never heard anyone say that. Uh, I think that what we need to understand is that once again, there, the ch early church is recognizing God's sovereignty and trusting his ability to fulfill his redemptive purposes in spite of man's rebellion, in spite of, of the rebellion that we have within the spiritual world uh, as well. This is the recognition that the cross is God's answer to this rebellion. He takes the evil of man and out of that evil brings about their salvation. That's the important thing. And I think that this is important because their first step in prayer is not to bring petitions to themselves, but to realign themselves with the character of God as he has revealed himself to them by his spirit through the scriptures and through their King Jesus. And they begin by praise. You're the God of creation. You're the God of revelation. You are the God of history. This history is your history. And we're a part of it. And we surrender to you. We submit to you. And look what happens. Now here they move into their petition. In verses 29 through 30, it says, And now, Lord, look upon their threats 
and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Notice, they are so confident in God's sovereignty, in his, his absolute rule, him having not lost his grip upon his purposes and upon, they believe that they are held by him, whatever the consequence, even if death faces them, they know that death itself will be their servant that ushers them into even more life. And so this fearlessness that is found, their boldness in their prayer translated to boldness in their witness. But I love this. Um, N.T. Wright said something really powerful. He says, the wickedness of rulers is held in check by and contained within the overall purpose of God who makes even human wrath turn to his praise. He's quoting actually directly from Psalm 76, verse 10. You will turn their wrath even to praise. God's ability to override. So how do they respond in their petition Now, Lord, look upon their threats. What did they not pray? This is the first thing that they asked for. The asking is actually more of a surrender, a yieldedness. They didn't say, now, Lord, and this is my response often, when I see things that really bug me in the media, I'm like, dang it, Lord, silence them. Make them stop. Make them go away. Judge them. But That's not what the early church prayed for. The early church said, Lord, look upon their threats. Their threats are real. In other words, Lord, we commit their threats to you. They didn't ask to escape them. They didn't ask for judgment upon them. But their first petition, and this shows a heart that's rightly aligned with the character of God. The God that they know and worship is a God who loves and gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The early church was a church that looked at the world through the saving eyes of Jesus. And they even looked at the enemies of the cross as those who had the potential to experience God's mercy. And so they left judgment to God. You look upon their threats, their threats. That's not our business. And I think that that's a great petition. Lord, I ask that you take this from me because you didn't ask me to carry it. And then they move to this and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. I think I want you to just think about your your own mind right now. What do you pray when an attack comes against you or when you see atrocities in the world, when you see when you see the things that are happening currently, even in our even in the political divisions happening within our country. Uh, and it is it is we live, we're living in an insane time when we're seeing the ethics of the kingdom uh, completely rejected by our culture. It, does it not at times make you boil with a righteous indignation? But how quickly does that righteous indignation become unrighteous? How quickly does, does our desire for justice become our desire for vengeance and our desire to see people pay for what they have done? And I think we can learn a lot from this because I even think about Jesus when he prayed those words when nails were hammered into his hands, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Is that your heart? And this is a conviction for me because often I get so mad. And instead of praying, going to the Lord, when I read things that are disturbing, I often you know, subject my wife to my, to my fuming about what's happening. And, and I, that's, not, that's not what the early church showed, shows us as a pattern. Grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Don't not protect us. Jesus actually taught us to pray, keep us from the evil one. Uh, 
but he didn't say to keep us from the possibility of suffering or the possibility of persecution. In fact, he said, in this world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer for I have overcome the world. There is that perfect balance. There is realities that are against God working in the world, but don't worry, I have already overcome it. I am sovereign. I have risen above it. I have broken its chains and I am keeping you in the midst of its ugliness to be conduits by which you can be a part of my rescue mission. Uh, It's a powerful reality. And here, this is the thing that I want you guys to think about. Do you think that we should pray for the lost? Do you think we should pray for the lost? Yes, I, I would argue that, I mean, Paul says pray for all people. So that would include a lot of lost people. So we're called to pray for the lost. But one thing that Acts doesn't record is, and I don't believe that Acts is a prescriptive book. I believe it's primarily a book of early church history. Uh, and, it's, and it doesn't give us a lot of detail. It gives us a lot of wonderful insight into the way that Jesus continued to fulfill his mission in the world through the, through the birth of the church. But Acts does not record the church praying for the lost. Instead, Luke is focused on something really significant, that prayer without action is powerless. That if we just pray for prayer's sake, but actually don't allow the Spirit to transform our action, it doesn't mean anything. So you can pray. So you all, we all have loved ones. We have loved ones, family members that don't know Jesus. And we pray, Lord, I, Lord save my father, but man, don't make me share it with him because he's exhausting. He always yells at me. Or Lord, save my coworker, but I hope I don't have to actually be the one that shares with them. And so the reality is that prayer can become a cop-out for, um, for hiding Hiding behind prayer to, uh, to uh, live in fear is not healthy. Uh, in fact, the fear of man is a snare, the scripture says. Every week, I feel this incredible fear before I preach. I, and I think it's good. I go through this little, it's a process. And the process is the recognition of my own glitches, my own intellectual inadequacies, my own, uh, my own uh, fears of just being in front of people, all of these things, I wrestle through them, and what it brings me to is a place of, of, of brokenness, if it's, a good, if it's a good Sunday, it should bring me to a place of brokenness where I say, Lord, I must decrease that you might increase. And I think that, that boldness is the outcome of discovering something worth dying for. The boldness is the outcome of knowing the depths of Jesus' love. The more you know his love, his ferocious love for you, his reckless love for you, the more you will not be able to maintain silence, but you must speak it out. The early church did not pray for the lost. They prayed for boldness to share with the lost because this is what you need to understand. Is Jesus alone the one who saves? Yes, he is, but he does it through human vehicles. How shall they hear if there's no preacher to preach? And you may not be a preacher, but all of us are called to be heralds to the king. All of us have a testimony to his reality. And so I think that as a church, we aren't truly praying for people if we aren't also acting upon that prayer in confidence that God is with me. This is the thing, is that I come to this place on Sundays where I'm like, oh, I don't want to do this, and I get really sick to my stomach, and then it's, it's this calmness that comes when I begin to speak, and often it doesn't come until I begin to speak. Just so you know, you want the peace before you do the act, it never comes. 
It's like it's the water didn't part until Moses put his foot in the water. <laughs> Same for Joshua when he, when he crossed the Jordan. I think that we need to understand that, that the step of faith is necessary for the boldness to come. The church prayed with the intention of acting. And I think that often when I come and I begin to speak, it's then when I sense God's spirit, the moment I begin to lift up the name of Jesus, that the universe is at my back and the spirit is within me saying yes and amen. And that alone can, must be our confidence. If there is a mantra for the church today, that mantra should be, I must decrease that he might increase. Jesus is Lord. He is the sovereign Lord. And I love this because their petition is not that God would protect them from attacks. They give the threats to God. Our petition is that you would take these and carry it. And all we ask, Lord, is that you make us bold to make you known. And the third petition is that while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Notice the early church's expectancy for God to move in miraculous ways. It's powerful. This is their petition. They begin with praise, re- reflecting upon the sovereignty of God. They move to petition, and the petition is that they would be usable by God for witness, and it ends with power. Look at verse 31. And when they prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Notice here, very much like Pentecost, uh, there is this there is this miraculous event that happens the place is shaken and i think that it's important we we often are looking for repetitions uh of events like i want him to shake this place and i don't know if i want to be in a building this old and have it be shaken uh but i i do believe that that the it being shaken is a picture once again of god's presence i have heard your prayer i am honored by your prayer i am here to empower you through your prayer and I think that this is important for us to understand. And people, a, a couple months back when I got back from London and I asked people to come forward that are desiring to experience just the presence of God, we need to understand that there were some that came forward and they're like, nothing happened and they're frustrated. And, and, and a life of faith is actually building your life upon the truth and allowing, do feelings matter? They absolutely matter. Feelings are what make us human. But our, we can't be controlled by our feelings We need to have our feelings shaped by the truth of who Christ is. And Jesus said, blessed are those who have not seen and still believe. And I think that God wants to assure you of his presence. He wants you to have an assurance of his love. And if you didn't experience something when you came down, that what that should do is not deter you from seeking. It should cause you to press in until you break through. I think that we are afraid to live with expectancy because we expect to be disappointed. And I think that if we began to believe, I will not rest until I have more of Jesus. I believe that there is as much, you are as close to Jesus as you choose to be. The point of last week's sermon was not to beat you up, but to show you that so much more can be had with, for all of us if we would just be willing to press in, if we would be willing to patiently wait upon him, if we gave him the space to move in our lives and make himself known. And when it feels like we're in the shade of his hand and there's radio silence, we live by faith and we continue to walk in obedience because obedience to a Christ that we can't feel is better than disobedience in a world that just brings death. And I think that this is the key to understanding the Christian life is it's not all Mount of Transfiguration moments. 
If you remember, that only happened once for the disciples, and then they went back to the valley. And I think that you shouldn't be afraid to, to ask for more of God's power and presence in your life, not for personal gain, but that his witness might be realized through you. And I, I would argue that many of you, if you're not experiencing the presence of Christ, is because you have not made yourself available to be used by him as a conduit to make him known. There is no powerful presence of Jesus apart from active obedience in witness. And I believe that fervently. The people that experience the fullness of Jesus are the people that live for Jesus and talk about Jesus and live for Jesus and live with Jesus. And I think that this is the key that we just need to understand. Uh, and the gospel in its fullness is available to all people who put their faith fully in him. So they, the place is shaken. God's presence was there and they were filled afresh. Notice, it's not another baptism of the Spirit. The baptism is the regeneration immersed into the body of God. But we are commanded in, um, again and again in Scriptures to be filled, to keep being filled. Being filled is not receiving more of the Spirit. The Spirit isn't a thing. It's a person that we yield to. Being filled with the Spirit is the Spirit having more and more control over our lives. It goes back to that initial statement, Sovereign Lord, Sovereign Lord. And they are spirit-filled. And without being spirit-filled, what we need is spirit-filled evangelism. We need the X factor, where we're so yielded to God and his work that the spirit is able to make Jesus known through our lives. That's the power of the spirit-filled life. And notice the outcome. And they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Presence, empowerment, and witness. Now, I want to just close with this powerful passage because I think that this pattern of prayer, of praise and petition and empowerment, prayer is meant to move us into action. God saved you not to get you out of hell into heaven, but that you might be a conduit by which you bring the reality of the kingdom of heaven to earth, that you make known the person of Jesus. The only reason he keeps us in this world as it is, is that through us he might make himself known. We are witnesses to his glory and the world is the theater of his glory. And I think that we need to understand that. We need to point people to the, the reality upon which all other realities hinge. That is when our lives will come alive, is when we become useful tools in the hands of our king. In the Hebrews chapter 12 I love the writer of Hebrews makes this powerful statement where he says that, that there will be a day when God will shake the heavens and the earth. And I love this picture here. The place was shaken. And, and in Hebrews, the picture is that God will shake the, world, the heavens and the earth until only that which is unshakable remains. And I pray that that is exactly what God is doing to us as we are experiencing sanctification, is that he would continue to shake our lives until only that which is unshakable remains. Because God wants to be utilizing us to make his son known. And I just ask, are you coming to prayer with that? Is prayer for you a personal thing like, Lord, I need more money. Lord, I need more happiness. Lord, I need this or that. Is our prayer begin with God's character. Lord, I praise you because you are sovereign, because you're the creator of all that is, because you have spoken to us through your word and through your son and by your spirit, because you have a plan and you are fulfilling those plans and purposes. And because of that, I can entrust my life to you. And Lord, I 
I give to you all the stresses and the anxieties that this world brings. It's not my place to fix them, but it is my responsibility to be available to you, to be a witness to a world that is broken and in distress. Are we carrying the shalom of Christ to the world? And I would argue that maybe what needs to happen in your life is that you need to have shaken out of you the things that hinder his ability to witness through you. I want to be a person that is more and more unshakable. But until that day, I pray that he shakes the heck out of me until only that which is, is unshakable remains. This is our acceptable worship. This is the God who deserves our reverence and our awe. For our God, it says in the scriptures, is a consuming fire. May he burn out of us every unworthy reality until his light and his love shines forth. Amen.